Romans 12, Paul just walked through kind of a, a summary, if you would, of the Christian life, laid out a lot of principles, and now he's going to continue that, obviously no break in the epistle, and speak about uh, the believer's basic attitude toward government. Now, it's surprising that anyone would have to talk about how we relate to politics, but apparently that was something in that day. It's still something in this day. Uh, it was important for a number of reasons, particularly then. There was also unrest. The Jews were very well known for uh, rebellion against the Roman government. They couldn't wait to get out from under the Roman government. They would say they weren't even enslaved to the Roman government. There was a number of rebellious attempts that had to be squashed. There was issues with the Jews in general, the Christians were then seen as, at first, a weird segment of Jews. The, the, the Roman world didn't really know how to splice these two. Um, and unfortunately, if you were a Christian, your, your founder, in, in a worldly view, was someone who was a criminal, crucified, and claimed to be a king. So there was these political elements that, that kind of surrounded the faith of these early believers, as well as uh, a number of different issues, like the Jews were at one point thrown out of Rome, which was mentioned in Acts 18. There was a, a kind of scandalous uh, accusation that followed Christians around. Acts 17 says this, Verses 6 and 7, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These men have turned the world upside down and have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. So the Christians are this segment that were known as kind of a, a different political element. They have another king. And on top of that, there was the real spiritual truth, that Paul was teaching that we do have another kingdom and we are citizens of another kingdom. And so in that day and age, you had this, this weird mixture of things and there was this tension between Jews and Christians, the outside world trying to see them as different, not really knowing how to do that. And these kind of elements of uh, a different king in a different kingdom. And then Christians in the middle of that trying to say, okay, how do we relate now to human government? How, honestly trying to say, how does that work for us if, if this is true? If we're waiting for Jesus as our king and we're citizens of another country, but we're also here under Roman rule, how does that work? And what Paul wants to show them uh, is that there's not necessarily conflict between God's rule and the presence of human government. That there doesn't have to be a conflict between those two. And that just because we're citizens of heaven doesn't mean that, we, that we're free of all relation to our present day temporary human governments that we're under. So it was important for them, you know, I know it's hard, but you have to imagine political debate, confusion, and rebellion, but try your best. And then we'll see what he has to say here. So in that context, verse one, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, 
we'll read down for a bit, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but for conscience's sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. So Paul here lays out this important section for them. Particularly, we'll skip back again, verse 1. The first thing he says is, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the, the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Paul wants to be clear that human government is a part of God's plan in this present world. It was He was the one who established it all the way back in Genesis 9, where he talked to Noah about capital punishment, a life being taken, and then a life given in regards to that. And that was established through the Old Testament in various ways. And so what Paul is saying is, this state, and you'll notice numerous times he mentions it, is God's minister, he says that three times, and God's authority. So the interestingly enough, the word for minister there is the same word that Paul uses for his own ministry as an apostle, and for even the ministry of angels from Hebrews chapter 1. It's a God-appointed ministry. It is a God-appointed authority. And what Paul is saying is there's a reality of God has established layers of authority in present life, in marriage between a husband and a wife, in the home between parents and children, in the church, in how it is supposed to be run, and in human government. And in all those areas of authority, they can be abused if they're used wrongly. But they are established by God, and they should be recognized as authority established by God and respected as a part of his design for human life. So the, the thing he wants them to understand right off the bat is, just because you're saved doesn't mean now there's a conflict between you and this. God established human government as a part of his plan in this present world. And you can respect that human government because it's from him. He doesn't tell us what form of government this would relate to a monarchy or a republic or a democracy, any type, as the church has been under all different types of government. He just says, understand that this is not something somehow totally out of the plan. God has established authority. Second, in verse 2, he begins to build, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good. You will have praise from the same. 
for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So here what Paul says is the main role of that human government is supposed to play is encouraging good and judging evil. He says they bear the sword. Uh, quite literally, Rome would wear a sword or carry a spear. You would understand he could literally kill me with that weapon. But it also means the power to judge the idea of capital punishment or judging on various levels. And that government was, notice, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Again, we have to tie 13 back to chapter 12. In chapter 12, God said, as individual believers, it is not our job to take vengeance on other people. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But now what Paul is saying is part of the way God still administers his vengeance on the earth, he doesn't just allow evildoers to run amok and totally kill his people everywhere. You would think, if I can't take vengeance on myself, are they they just going to kill every believer in the world in certain scenarios? Well, no. What he's saying is, actually, he establishes human government to deal with evildoers. And when human governments deal with evildoers, that is part of the way that he establishes his own vengeance and his own repayment here in the world. And you can see, really, through human history, of course, there's been abuses, But there's been a whole lot of scenarios where even secular governments essentially keep Christians safe and allow them to live lives where they can be witnesses. Uh, It is a blessing in our country that that's mostly the reality for us. And the, the reality of that for them was a part of the way that God was working in the world. And I think sometimes it's just hard for people to maybe kind of separate God's grace in the world and God's government of the world. Both of those things are true. God has a heart for the salvation of the world, but he has a plan for the preservation of the world. And if he didn't preserve the world, where sometimes he deals with evildoers, his heart of salvation would not work out correctly. There's some pretty crazy people in the world that, have access to nuclear weapons. If he didn't keep that in check, we'd all be gone. The Bible says he's going to come back at one point, and if he didn't, all flesh would be gone. There's a, there's a reality where God governs the world. That doesn't mean he doesn't have grace, but it means he also has government. He rules and reigns and organizes things. And human government is a part of the way that he organizes things in the world. And he says, if you do good, you shouldn't be afraid of human government. And again, Paul was a guy who experienced both sides of this. He was both abused by human government and also protected and kept by human government. He traveled all over the world, and he was at times robbed and taken advantage of, he tells us. But there are plenty of other times he was safe because he was traveling on Roman roads and Rome kept those roads safe. So there are times where leaders abuse him and there are times where people protected and watched over him. So 
The reality was Paul understood human government as I interact with it is a part of God's service in the world. He works through this. So, you know, particularly if you're a believer in the world and you're in a, you know, a place of government service, this should be encouraging, encouraging to you. Every police officer or judge or, you know, DA or prosecutor or you're a soldier, you can realize, all right, I, I actually have a God-ordained role in the world. That's why Jesus, John the Baptist, Paul, the other apostles, when they interacted with Roman centurions, they never told them, quit your job. In fact, what they said was, don't abuse your authority. They recognized that there was authority there from the Lord, that there was a role to be played. That, you know, as a believer, I could have somebody, you know, have some criminal action against me, and I could forgive them in, as an individual and still have the government play its role in judging them, and both those things can be fine. Because both of those can be God's role in the world that we live in. So Paul is here saying, look, there's a, a role for human government to play. And again, uh, our experience of this for the most part is a blessing. We're mostly kept so that we can live godly lives and share the gospel and seek him. And we should be blessed by that. And Paul wants them to see that there's, there's a part of God in this. So he would say to those believers in general, you guys don't have to be afraid of human government. God can use that to keep and protect you. If you're doing good, don't worry. Yeah, if you're an evildoer, then you have to worry. If, if you just want to drive 95 on 95 and say that's the speed limit, you're going to have to worry. They do have cameras on the boulevard, right? You should, some of you are aware of that already. So the, the reality is we can't just blow those off. Peter would say none of us should suffer as evildoers. None of us should suffer as a murderer or a thief or... Yeah, well, then guess what? You're crossing God's authority in human government in the world. But overall, we shouldn't be worried about that. We recognize God's uh, hand in the reality of human government. Therefore, verse 5, now he's getting to the heart kind of, of what he wants to get across to these believers. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So what he says to these believers is, you, d- you don't just obey or submit to human government just so you don't get thrown in jail. You do it because we recognize God's authority is behind them. And by honoring them, I therefore honor him. And my conscience can be clear. That's what makes it a matter of conscience, that I see God behind this other individual. So that's why Paul, when he's in prison and gets mistreated by the Philippian jailer, when he's set free, could have just ran away and jailer could have lost his life. But he didn't do that at all. He hung there. And actually, he ended up witnessing to this jailer and ended up getting saved. And so did his family. And He never actually said to him, stop being a jailer. He probably said, 
don't just beat everybody next time. Be a little kind, right? Let's have a different witness now. But there was, there was a recognition all throughout his life of there's a role that's ordained by God that these individuals are playing. And by honoring them and treating them respectful, I am then in good conscience doing the same to the Lord. I recognize God's work behind those things. That's why he could also say in verse 6, for because of this, you pay taxes. They're God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. They are servants continually playing their role, so we pay them to play their role. He's, he's certainly picking up on Jesus's um, teaching in giving to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's here. But he'd say, because of this, you pay taxes. They're God's ministers attending this very thing. Render, therefore, all their due, taxes to whom taxes, customs to whom customs, right? You're traveling somewhere, going through customs. You're supposed to pay for those goods that are moving. He says, pay those things. Have the proper respect. There shouldn't be, you shouldn't, as Christians, be seeking ways to enact tax evasion. You shouldn't be involved in insurance fraud, like, we, we, Rome wasn't the most uh, honest government all the time either. But he's not saying, look, rip them off because you know they're going to rip you off next time. He's saying, what, what I recognize is God has put these governments in place, and I am respecting him through the government. I'm not just respecting them. And in conscience, in good conscience, that is what he's called me to do. So you pay your taxes, you pay your customs, and he says, this is where I think he's picking up on Christ's larger principle, fear to whom fear is due and honor to whom honor is due. That's, this is, he says, look, that's why, because that's why, our conscience should be clean. We can pay taxes, customs, we can give respect. Jesus was respectful even to the Pharisees who were punching him in the face. Paul was respectful most of the time when he was thrown in jail or before rulers. The disciples, the same. Again, it doesn't even talk about the type of government here. It doesn't just say to good governments or to the type of government that you want. It's to human government. So they're all human. They're all messed up in one way or another. It's why Paul could say, pray for everyone in authority, for kings and rulers, because there was a God-ordained reality behind it. So he knew it was pleasing that we would do that. And what he means here is that our attitude toward human government is a reflection of our relationship with God and a serious part of our testimony. Paul would write to Titus and say this, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, and to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. 
what Paul says is our relation to human government is not supposed to be cruel, speaking evil. It's supposed to be peaceable, it's supposed to be gentle, it's supposed to be showing all humility. And he says, you want to know why? Because we used to be like them. We were hateful once, too, and hating other people. We were evil once, too. We were given over to lust once, too. And, and our reaction to those in human government that are in those positions, as they always are, is supposed to be honoring to the Lord, even in their sin. And it's supposed to be a testimony. Like the, you know, Titus 3, 1 through 3, is, is not what you see when you look in political comment sections online or what is the normal type of speech on the news. It is the Christian position taking the right political position on a subject with the wrong attitude of character is not only non-Christian, it's a sin. And it becomes the type of witness that God is not looking for when it comes to human government. Fear to whom fear is due, honor to whom honor is due. doesn't mean we agree with everything. doesn't mean that we have no position. doesn't mean that we don't stand our ground on truth. But what it means is we have the attitude of a Christian who realizes this is not their home and that the person I'm talking to is totally lost. They're not saved. And if I was not saved, the only difference between me and them is the grace of God. I would be just like them because I live in their world. I would be caught up in the same things out of the same lust, out of the same hate, out of the same attitudes. Instead, we're supposed to take the example of Jesus Christ before Pilate. He didn't rail on him or talk about what a type of horrible political figure he was. He actually just said, you would have no power unless it was given to you from above. He respected even his father in the middle of that interaction. Paul the Apostle did it. The other apostles did it. The early saints did it. Those early fathers in the Old Testament, you look at the way Joseph was in Egypt. You look at the way Moses was in Egypt, even his interaction with Pharaoh. You look at how Daniel was respectful, Nehemiah, Esther, Mordecai. You go through the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the people that God was using in political realms were people that upheld his character, not just positions. And so what we're called to do as believers is recognize God's institution of these things, and even though there's abuses, just like there is in a marriage or in a family with parents or in the church at times, and just like we can agree, disagree in certain levels in all of those other arenas, there's still is supposed to be a certain respect because of what God has set up there. It's the same thing with human government, which is why Peter would say in 1 Peter 2.17, honor all people love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. And I think it's important 
for us particularly, because in this day and age, where there's so much political strife, particularly even in the world that we live in and in America, not just America, but it's all over the place, this becomes such an easy way to be a Christian and be a testimony and be a witness. To, to have the type of political speech and attitude that Paul is calling for here that he commands in Titus 3, 1 through 3, and that Peter calls for in 1 Peter two seventeen, immediately makes us different than other people. And people would say, how come you're different? And then we could say, because our kingdom's not of this world. Because we understand there's somebody else in charge. And we could quickly give an answer for the hope that's in us. Because our hopes aren't totally tied here, so we don't have to lose it. And we can recognize that person who's a corrupt political leader is lost. They need to know Jesus Christ. And instead of evil speech, that's not peaceable or gentle or showing humility, we could pray for that other person. If we have enough time to complain about them, we have enough time to pray for them. It's, conv- it's convicting, right? I know it's the same for me. You see people on TV or articles or on the news, and you can the first thing that comes is complaints. But then we have to realize, Lord, that's not what you command. And this person is lost. They need to be saved. Let them come to know you, come to the truth. And God becomes honored in those things. Now, to say that, I just want to add on. What Paul is saying here is very clear. Paul is speaking about government in its proper God-given place. The problem, of course, comes in when people ask, what if government is commanding me to do something evil? What if the state abuses its God-given authority? And I would just like to make one thing very clear here. Paul is not answering that question in this passage. Do you notice that? Because people read this passage, then immediately they say, well, except for when you're preaching the gospel or something, right? But do you notice there are no, no exceptions in this passage? Paul doesn't give any exceptions. And the reason he doesn't give any exceptions are because he's talking about government in its proper place. So to find out what we should do with government in its improper place I can't actually just look to this passage. I have to go other places in the Bible. And apparently, Paul didn't feel like he needed to get into how they would deal with abuses. He must have already thought that they know those things. There's some uh, implicit kind of uh, logic you could pull out here. But I think the reality is, from the very beginning, anybody who was a follower of Jesus just knew Government is going to, at some point, abuse us, but we still just obey God. That was literally what happened to Jesus Christ. It was, ha- it was what was happening to the disciples immediately after Christ died and rose again. Acts tells us, Acts 4, 18 and 19, and then 529, two immediate scenarios. They called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. And again, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God 
rather than men. So everybody knew, believers knew from the very beginning, of course we obey God first. And I think, like I said, uh, you can take from this, we obey the government's authority because it is from God. That's the logical outworking that Paul is using here. So when the authority is no longer of God or used against God, well, of course we no longer obey government. The, the other thing that I think is important to recognize here is that the passage does give us is we can't again separate chapter 12 from chapter 13. And what I mean by that is this. The end of chapter 12 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And the simple question is, who's evil and who's good? Well, God's evil and good, of course. And so the evil and good in chapter 12 is the same as the evil and good in chapter 13. So when Paul says that the government is not a terror to good works but to evil, whose good works is that? The government's? No, it's God's. It's God's good and God's evil. And therefore, it's God's minister to you for good, God's good, But if you do evil, God's evil, all the evil and good talked about in this same section are God's, not the world's. It's his moral here. And every passage, again, that talks about human government uses the same terms of good and evil. Again, Titus 3.1, remind them to be subject to rulers and authority to obey, to be ready for every good work. 1 Peter 2, again, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors or those sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you may put the silence, the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. And again, as I said, Peter would say, don't suffer as an evildoer. None of us should suffer as evildoers. So that's where our context comes very important here. When the government forsakes God's good and commands obedience to God's evil, we surrender to the higher authority of God. Does it make sense? Right? That's, he's talking about good here. The government commands you to do good things. You do the good things. So he doesn't need to give an exception because I never need an exception to doing things that are good in God's sight. I also never need an exception to evil that is God's evil being judged. The only exceptions come when, in a passage that's not directly being related to this, we see people thrown into scenarios where the government wants to do evil. So that's where verse 5 comes back into play. The conscience is involved before God and his authority when it has to choose between good and evil. And now this is why everything became very confusing for people just recently and very hard to figure that out. Because in some of our most recent scenarios, whether it was good or evil to close church or to wear masks or to get a vaccine, or to follow some of the rules that our government was putting out for us. It was debated whether those things were good or evil. And 
That's why there was really godly people on either side of the issue who were trying to figure those things out because it wasn't directly clear. And the reality is different people have such different scenarios. It wasn't the same. So anybody who felt like it was a good thing to do any of those things, it seemed very clear to them. And anybody who felt like any of those things were evil in their scenario, it also seemed very clear to them. And the only problem was when everybody was like, you need to make your conscience my conscience. And then because we couldn't force other people to have the same conscience, we have conflict, right? Before God and before one another. And sadly, uh, I think the, the worst part is there's, there was a lot of, both from both pastors and people, ideas that we should somehow be the ones who can decide for everybody else what is their good and evil when God does not declare it clearly at times. And this is why, you know, as a church, we honestly did our best to minister to both segments. And what Paul's going to talk about in the next chapter is where the Bible does not speak clearly about something as good or evil, right? Thou shalt not steal is always evil. That's pretty clear. The Bible doesn't say thou shalt or shalt not wear a mask. Doesn't. Or thou, thou shalt or shalt not get a shot or follow this particular rule in this particular scenario. And the reality is for some people's lives and scenarios they were in, that was really difficult or hard. And they saw evil on one level or another before God. And they struggled with, I, I know I'm supposed to obey government, but this seems to be causing me to do something evil, whether to myself or child or another person, or in my worship to the Lord. And we respected that person in their conscience. We also respected the person who felt like this is an easy thing. This is good. And it was, it was honestly a bit prideful that people felt like they could stand up there and tell everybody else what should happen in their lives. As if every circumstance and scenario and family and bodily health scenario was all similar, that we could lay it across the board. And this passage, I think it's important for us because we need to see what it says and what it doesn't say. And this doesn't say in every scenario, all the time, if you can't directly say something is sinful, you obey the government. What it says is when the government tells you to do God's good, you do it. And when the government judges God's evil, it's a good thing. That's what it says. And then outside of that, we got to honor God in our consciences and what he calls us to do in respect to human government. And it's not always so easy to apply. Not for us in America, who I think, like, like we're not experts at civil disobedience here. Praise God, we haven't been thrown in that position a lot. I think the church all over was learning. And we needed to be patient with one another. But all over the world, people struggle with this. You know, in China, they battle. There's a state-sanctioned church. And you could be a part of that. Or you're in the underground church where you're illegal. But in the state-sanctioned church, they'll make you do stuff like put cameras in your church. It's not a sin to have cameras in your church. We have cameras in our church. But a lot of people don't want that state watching in on them. 
or they'll command them to do certain things or say certain things during their service. And some people, some Christians feel like they could just do that and it's fine. And then their church is safe and sanctioned. And other Christians feel like we can't do that. That's, that's an invasion in what the Lord is doing and it's persecution. And you know what? There's a split in China and how Christians deal with that scenario. How in their conscience they see what the government is doing as good or evil. It's not always so easy to figure things out. And I think for us as believers, it's important for us because there's plenty of people, and I know I had plenty of discussions, as did many other pastors, as to, I want to do what the Lord says. How do I work this thing out, though? Is it so clear-cut? And the answer is, no, it's not. Everybody wants it to be clear-cut because that makes it easier. And I also don't have to walk by faith, and I can tell everybody else what to do. But it's not that easy. And God makes us exercise our conscience before him personally. And then he makes us exercise, you notice the context is not divorce, our love for one another. As he ties those two together, notice he says in verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love one another. That word for owe is the verb form of the word do in verse 7. Render therefore to all their due. And Paul's tying those things together. Again, you have, you have a, a debt to pay the human government that offers you services and is used of God to protect you on certain levels. You also have a debt to pay in love, as he's already talked about, to those around us. And the reality is, you know, like I said, in some of those situations we just went through, um, they were very difficult and hard to figure out. Um, we may not know if we were right in all of them. I might not know that, but I can know if I was loving towards the other individuals, even the ones I disagreed with or that disagreed with me. And if my heart is in that right place and I was loving in my interactions, if I was honoring and gentle and patient, then my heart can be unbelievable in holiness before Christ when he comes with all the saints. And I think the, the instruction for us is more than in just the practicals. The Bible always brings back Christ's character to us. I'm not supposed to just be a Christian in position. I'm supposed to be a Christian in life, in the Holy Spirit. And we all went through it. Nobody wants to go back to it. It's kind of like junior high years. You're like happier through, you know, you're like, I don't want to go back there. But the reality is these scenarios of God Terry's are going to pop up again. And I think if we can learn, we can be wise. We could do things better. And this context, I think it's important for us to think through and say, okay, Lord, I need to know how to work through these scenarios. And I think it's important that we know what this passage is saying and what this passage is not saying. Again, Paul did not write Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, to explain to everybody how to deal with government when it's commanding you to do things that are evil in God's sight or that you feel in your conscience is a betrayal of the Lord. That's not why he wrote those passages. He wrote it to tell us, when it tells you to do things that are good, you should respect it. You should have the right attitude toward it. You should see God's hand behind the establishment of it. 
and you should have the right heart towards it, which is also challenging, particularly if you feel like it's doing something that's evil. Because guess what? Again, like Titus says, they're lost. And you used to be them. And I want a particular character displayed toward that government. Not a particular political ideal established. A particular character displayed that Jesus displayed, that Paul displayed, and that we're supposed to carry toward that government. And then, verse 8, toward one another. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment that are all summed up in the saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul uh, it's not blanking a blanket statement about all borrowing. Other scriptures make it clear it's okay to borrow things. When he says, oh, no man, nothing. Sometimes people take that. You should never be in debt. Or you can, it's, it's smart not to get in debt if you don't have to. Um, but Exodus twenty two twenty five, 25, Psalm 37, 21, Matthew 5, 42, Luke 6, 35. Jesus tells parables about people going and asking your friend to borrow things. Like all borrowing or lending is not wrong in the scripture. There's an irresponsible version of that, certainly. Paul, again, is picking up on the same reasoning with Christ and his coin, where he's saying we shouldn't leave outstanding debts, certainly to human government, but if we're not leaving outstanding debts to human government, if we render to Caesar what is Caesar's, I certainly shouldn't leave out the greater debt that I owe, which is love to my neighbor. That's, that's the greatest debt that I owe, and I should not leave that unpaid. I have a debt of love toward those around me. And if I pay off my practical debts, but I'm a miserable human being, I have not paid my greater debt. We don't want to be stodgy old people with some money in the bank. That's not the Christian testimony that we're aiming for. Paul brings in Christ's golden rule 1B, I guess, Mentioned plenty of times in scriptures, again, Leviticus 19.18, Matthew 22.39, Mark 12.31, Galatians 5.14, James 2.8. It's, it's repeated in scripture because we're supposed to be reminded of it again and again. And it goes beyond the simple meaning of commands. Paul mentions a number of the commands, adultery, murder, stealing, bearing false witness, coveting. He's saying all of those things, yes, they are not love. That's true. Uh, it doesn't matter what anybody's telling you. Adultery is not God's love in any circumstance, scenario, whatsoever. If you are tempted toward adultery, that is not God. You do not have love for that person. You have lust for yourself. That is not the love God is looking for. Murder is not the right type of love. Coveting doesn't have God's love in it. Stealing, bearing false witness, all those things, they're not at all love in God's eyes. But what he says there is not, not only that, there's something greater than just not doing those things. Love does no harm to a neighbor, and it's the fulfillment of the law. That if, if you just love one another the way God tells us to, 
we wouldn't need any of those commandments. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have to put up the Ten Commandments. It would be fine because you wouldn't steal from them anyway. You wouldn't lie to them anyway. You wouldn't be covetous anyway. Love ends up fulfilling the law. You know, we tend to find ways to love ourselves or see ourselves worthy of love despite our many faults. We just don't give other people that type of uh, deference there. We should love others. Not only is that what is best for them, it's also actually what's best for us. Like God doesn't just give us this command because this is good for other people. Like it would be good, I guess God, I'll be magnanimous enough to love them. They should be really happy about it. This will be, no, this is actually what is best for us. It is best for my life if I love my neighbor as I would love myself. That, that will be the best thing that happens also for me. God doesn't just give commandments to me for other people. He gives commandments because this is the way human life is, not should be. And if you live life the way life is, God created it to be, you're set free. You find life. It's actually what's best for you, not just for other people. And so... Paul can repeat Christ's command very clearly. Love is the fulfillment of the law. It'll take care of all those things. And do this. On top of that, he's going to give a final encouragement. Knowing the time that now it is high time to wake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believe. And on top of that, he says, realize how close you are to the Lord's return. You should know the time that you live in. You should recognize what time it is and wake out of sleep. I think we have all awoken, awoken out of sleep. Woken up, awoken, awaken. I don't know how to say that correctly. Got up. And we realized, oh my goodness, the time is not what I thought it was, right? I slept in, this is, I, or, you know, you're way early and you're like, all right, I can go back to bed. That's kind of a better feeling. You, you should be aware of the time and you should, he says, wake up out of sleep. We are close to Christ's return and how we deal with human government and people that bother us and those who do not bless us but curse us, those who we want to take vengeance on, all of the, those we pay taxes to, that's only going to be happening for a short time. We should realize that. And we can't fool around with the precious time God has given us. And we should wake up out of our sleep. Now, there's good sleep in the Bible and there's bad sleep in the Bible. Good sleep is rest that we need. It's, I believe it's Spurgeon who calls it industrious rest. Right? Many of you today, you went, you got up, you worked a job, you did something honorable, you served the Lord, you're here seeking him, and you're going to go home tonight afterwards and you're going to be tired and you're going to fall asleep. Because you filled your day up with good things and now you need rest so that you can rest and get up and fill your day up with another day of service to the Lord. That's good sleep. It's industrious rest. It has a purpose. There's 
good sleep, and then there's bad sleep. And bad sleep is when I'm sleeping when I should be doing something else. When you should be at your job, or you should be with your kids, or your spouse, or serving the Lord, or living life, and you're just sleeping. Or when you're asleep, as Paul is saying here, to spiritual realities. Right? When we sleep, there's real experience. In a dream, you can experience pain, you can experience anger, you can experience joy, you can experience fear. But then you wake up and you step into the greater reality. That, that dream was just for a moment, a bit. What we have here in this life is the dream. And everything that can be shaken will be shaken, the Bible says. And then one day, we wake up. And that reality doesn't change. It's eternal. And it's a greater reality. And everything that's there matters more. And when I am in this type of term, asleep, the way Paul's talking, is he's saying we can't be insensitive, unaware, spoiling or wasting true life, spiritual life. I can't be walking around like the biggest thing that matters are things that if Jesus Christ came back today, wouldn't matter at all. They'd be like a dream. I'm an Eagles fan, but in the end, if Jesus Christ showed up, if the Eagles win the Super Bowl and Jesus shows up Monday morning, it's going to be like a dream. Right? I'm not, we're not going to be in heaven saying, oh, we didn't get the parade in, you know, I wish we would have. That's not the most important thing. And sadly, it's easy for people to go living awake to the world and asleep to Jesus Christ, asleep to his purposes, asleep to his spirit, asleep insensitive to the things that actually matter that God is trying to do in our lives on a daily basis. And that's a bad type of sleep, a spiritual sleep. And what Paul is saying is, it's time to wake up. I can't just wander through life like I'm sleepwalking. And then if spiritual reality were to hit and I were to step into eternity, it would be a shock. That means I'm asleep. I need to know the time that I'm in. I should realize my salvation is nearer than when I first believed. And I should not be asleep in a, in a negative way. He says, verse 12, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. The night's almost over. If I've been sleeping, I've been sleeping too long. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Our, our time in this dark world, facing the difficulties we face, that's almost over. Christ's rule and reign is right on the horizon. I should put on my spiritual armor now so that I can walk as I'm going to want to walk as I step into that kingdom. Again, the armor of Christ 
uh, it's mentioned numerous times in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 6, 7, Ephesians chapter 6, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. It's not super specific. Paul, each time he kind of picks it out, he changes it a little bit. Different forms of what the Christian life is. And I need to put those things on to step into the current world that I'm in. Because I know there's some battle there. I need faith. I need the word of God. I need Christ's righteousness. I need to understand his salvation. I need truth. I need to have it on my right hand and on my left. And all the different pictures he gives us, here he talks about it as armor of light. It's reflective of that world we're going into, not the world we're leaving. The world we're leaving is darkness. The world I'm entering into is light. Light is seeing things the way God sees them in the scriptures or seeing things the way they really are, which is how God sees them. And I should put on the armor of light, put on Christ as needed. That day is far spent. Let us, he says, walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, in lewdness and in lust, not in strife, and in envy, we shouldn't, our lives shouldn't be filled up. That's all stuff that shows I'm spiritually asleep. If I'm given over to sexual sin, if I'm given over to revelry, these partings, it's the same type of things. Drunkenness, things that happen in the night, things that people want to happen in secret or in the dark, not out in the open as much. And notice he doesn't just end there. He says in strife and in envy, it's not just Things that maybe we'd say, all right, I don't struggle with that, or maybe I used to. Well, strife, envy, all of us can. Lust, not just sexual, but for anything. All of those those things are not living awake to spiritual things, and like Christ's return is on the horizon. I should put all of those things off and live the life of Christ, put him on. The two are mutually exclusive. I can't, I can't do, be doing one and the other at the same time. I can't wear light and darkness. I can't be asleep and awake. I can't be reveling, reveling in things of the world and given to the things of the Spirit. They're mutually exclusive. So when we put one on, we put the other off. And we're not sons of the night. The Bible says we are sons of light and sons of the day, not of the night or of the darkness. And we should be reflective of who we are. It's who we're supposed to be. I'm not just supposed to be a Christian. I'm supposed to be a light. Some people just want to be a Christian. We're not just supposed to be Christians. We are the light of the world. I'm not just supposed to be saved. I'm supposed to stand out in the current world that we live in, in a crooked and perverse generation. And it doesn't take much nowadays. But I'm not supposed to light a candle and put it under a bushel. We're supposed to be like a city set on a hill. Any Christian that wants to to hold their salvation and not also show their salvation has something wrong going on. They're either asleep or they haven't put on the right thing. Something should be seen about us, felt about us. These things we shouldn't have on, 
But we should put on, verse 14, the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. These things we put off and then we put on him. And that should just grow and grow. Proverbs says, the path of the just is as a shining light or the shining sun that shines more and more until the perfect day. That light should be growing in our lives till we step into his presence. More and more. Um, not to make provision for the flesh. I'm supposed to put on Christ. Uh, there's uh, making provision that's living with an expectation to gratifying our flesh. Um, I'm setting it up, making it easy. When I was younger, I liked to play sports, mostly stuff on my feet. But um, in my car was essentially provision for the lust of my flesh. In my trunk, I had a basketball and basketball sneakers. I had football cleats and a football. I had a bowling ball and, yes, my own bowling shoes. I had golf clubs and golf shoes. I had a vol Essentially, any of my friends could call and say, we're playing this sport, and I'd say, I'll be there in a second. And I just had what I needed in my trunk, right? I had provision for the less of my, I was prepared to go do that thing. Then you start to get a little older and you still enjoy sports, but you also have this thought like, Lord, just please don't let me get hurt. <laughs> and then you get to the point where I realize I don't want to play basketball, but if I leave my shoes in my trunk and I bring my basketball with me and people tell me I'll probably go out there and do it. So I would have to take them out and leave them at home. I did not make provision, because if I made provision, I would cave. And what sometimes we do, because we know we're good Christians, we're like, eh, you know, I can't, you can't overtly jump into these things that we know are sinful, but we make provision for our flesh. We still make it easy to happen. Certainly, Pornography is a plague through the church. People make it easy for it to happen. They connect with people they don't need to be connected with. They're on all types of things that are filled with filth, and then they wonder why they get sucked into things. Proverbs chapter 3, or excuse me, Proverbs chapter 5 says, Remove your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. Don't even make provision. Remove your way far away from those things. If there's somebody who bugs you to no end, and you're like, next time I see them, I'm going to punch them in the face. Don't walk by where you know they're going to walk by. Of course that's going to happen. If you, if you make provision, you are going to fail. So God is smart enough. He literally has to tell us this because he knows this is what we'll do. I'll make provision for the lust of my flesh. I'm not going to eat ice cream. I'm just going to walk through the ice cream aisle and look at what's there. Because what if something was on sale? Maybe I'll buy it for later. Provision for the lust of our flesh right? in a lot of different ways. And what the Bible says is, instead, I put on Jesus Christ and don't even go near those things. That's what I'm supposed to do. Because, again, in the end, they're mutually exclusive. If I put on one thing, I have to put off the other thing. And the more I put on Christ, 
the more I'm living in reality, the more I'm recognizing I don't have much time to do this. And I want, when Jesus Christ shows up, to have the armor light on. And to be naturally what I'm walking into. And to be unashamed in that day. I'll finish with this. The Pilgrim's Progress, I love the picture, speaks about one character named Valiant for Truth. Who kept his sword, they found him on the path, fighting. And before he enters into heaven, he speaks about leaving some things behind. His sword to him who could take it up and whatnot. But one of the things he says is, my marks and my scars I take with me. Because they're going to be a witness for me that I have fought the battles of him who will now be my rewarder. Everything I've found in this path, I'm taking with me. He wore his armor, fought the good fight. And he said, my marks and my scars, the things I found in that path, I take with me. They're the witnesses that I've been on his path, that I fought his battles, that I've done the thing that he wanted me to do. We should wake up and realize that's what presented to us every day. It might not be in the most fantastic ways. It might be having the right political attitude, paying your taxes, or making a decision to not make provision for the lust of your flesh. In fact, nobody else on earth might even see those things because maybe they just happen in your heart or in your mind. But there's one person who will see them. And all those things will be witnesses that you've been on the right path and you fought the battles of him who's now going to be your rewarder. Let's stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you again for your word. You know what we need to hear. And we thank you that you're willing to tell us. Give us wisdom, Lord Jesus. Let us seek it. Let us, Lord, learn your knowledge. Let us have the fear of you to hear your words and to keep them. Not just to hear them and believe them, but to be doers of your word. So you know how this works out for each and every one of us. You know what it looks like in our lives. And you know what we need from you. So we pray, Lord Jesus, that where we need grace, you would give it. Where we need mercy, you would give it. Where we need your light and your correction and your strength, you would give it. And that you would work out the good pleasure of your will in and through us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.